Okay, ready? Take what you know and it's about a time when you get yourself in we are. I want to know something she's I think about everyone you need. I'm holding it. Things are moving real now. I have seen you wanting you. Hey. The tour ratio. Okay, though. The tour ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. So I feel like, you know, when you are cooking from a place of the intellect, you know, I, I do feel like that is masculine energy. And that's when you are wanting to outdo that competitive energy. And I'm very competitive, so I, I understand that. But to create with female energy, it's more nurturing. And a lot of times when people want to impress, they they leave the heart, they go to the head. And I can taste that. And it's just not as good. And so when someone is cooking from their heart and it is about where what grounds them and a lot of times it comes through their culture or it comes through that place of love that they're that they are sitting in that is grounding them. I'm like, I love this. It doesn't have to be fancy, but I can feel that this food is right for my soul. That's Carla Hall, chef. Carla Hall, one of the great chefs in America. You saw her on Top Chef. She had her own place in Brooklyn. Now she's got her line Sweet Heritage on QVC selling food and cooking stuff. But let me take a step back. A minute ago, I was thinking, you know, chefs are awesome. They're somewhere between artists and scientists. And I said, let's do a whole series on amazing black chefs. So that's what we're going to have coming at you. Just great Black chefs talking about their craft, life in the kitchen, how to cook. It's going to be great. First up, Chef Carla Hall, who is famous, who is experienced, who is brilliant, who has been doing this all her life. So let's dig into it. It's Chef Carla Hall on Toray Show. What do you love about cooking? Um, it is my, it's the way I nurture people. It's, um, and I didn't realize this until I was really doing the baking shows that I call myself uh, a food whisperer. Um, so it's, that, it's like I can taste people's emotion in their food. Also, I am the self-proclaimed culinary matriarch of my family. Yeah. What what does that mean? It means that it is up to me to teach the younger generation our culture through the foods that my grandmother made because my sister's not going to do it. My mother's not going to do it. And when we have holidays. And so I remember when I had my first cookbook, I gave everybody a page uh, or a recipe to do in the book for our Thanksgiving dinner. And I was like, oh, this is great. This is this is like my reason for doing this cookbook. And then they got kind of too big for their britches. They started to go in south. I'm like, nah, uh-uh. Your macaroni and cheese is not better than mine. You still need my recipe. <laughs> so when you say you could taste someone's, you can taste the feelings of the chef? So I feel like, um, you know, when you are cooking from a place of the intellect, you know, I, I do feel like that is masculine energy. And that's when you are wanting to outdo that competitive energy. And I'm very competitive, so I, I understand that. But to create with female energy, it's more nurturing. And a lot of times when people want to impress, they they leave the heart, they go to the head. And I can taste that. And it's just not as good. And so when someone is cooking from their heart and it is about where what grounds them. And a lot of times it comes through their culture or it comes through that place of love that they're, that they are sitting in, that is grounding them. I'm like, I love this. It doesn't have to be fancy, but I can feel that this food is right for my soul. 
The other stuff, I, I will forget it the next day. I'm like, what did I have? I don't know. But if it's like a, sometimes a meatloaf sandwich, and I remember crying over a meatloaf sandwich sandwich in this restaurant in New York, and I was giggling, and the next thing I knew, I was crying because it was so good. I'm, wow. I've definitely had dishes that got me deep, and it's never like the high-end restaurant. It's something with a lot of seasoning, a lot of sauce, a lot of gravy, and I'm like, oh, I feel sloppy, and this is great. Yeah, because I think that's where that's that's ultimately where we like to feel, and 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 that is true comfort food when it's connecting with your emotions. But you've also talked about if the chef is happy, if you are happy, then it's going to be better than if you're off your mood or off your center or, or whatever you want to call it. Is, is that that's your experience? That's my experience. So I say, if, if I'm not in a good mood, the only thing I want to make is a reservation because <laughs> I, I know I'm not going to be putting any bad mojo into someone's uh, food. And I think that, and so I can taste that like, Oh, this person really wasn't into it today. You know what I mean? And so, and I also think that it is an honor to cook for people and, and whether you call it a prayer or whether it's your intention when you're coming from that intention, I think it does, it's, it's felt and tasted through the food. I think those dishes that we're talking about, and I'm not saying that fine dining isn't great, but no. you're working, but, but sometimes when, when that's, you know, it's so many different hands that goes into that food that sometimes things may be lost in translation. You know, mm. and, and I'm not saying that comfort food is always great because sometimes it's a messy mess. And I'm like, eh. yeah. no, I mean, like one person could do a burger. Great. Another person could do a burger. Terrible. Exactly. Right. So, you know, I ask everybody who comes on the show, what does being black mean to you? And where does it show up in the work? And I can feel that you are very much steeped in African-American culinary tradition and understand how you stand on the shoulders of all the people who came before you. So what is being a black, what does blackness mean to you as far as being a black chef? I, I take this position very seriously as being on television, having the platform and a lot of times being one of the minorities in television. I, I, I take this role very seriously to, to show up as a black woman, as somebody who unapologetically loves soul food. Um, but I also want to educate not only the world and America, but other black people that our soul food that we see is in a box that is quite small, that it needs to be much larger. So it's not just the celebration dishes like macaroni and cheese and um, smothered pork chops and uh collard greens and candied yams and oxtails, but all of those ingredients that are indigenous from Africa, that's also part of our soul food. And so there's the everyday dishes and the celebration dishes, because I think that if we get stuck in that space, like if somebody says, oh, I don't eat soul food because it's going to kill me, we're denying our culture. And we're not looking past what someone has put in this very small box. And I understand why uh, and how soul food came about in, in that moniker in the 60s and so that we can own our space and our contributions to this cuisine. But I also think it's much larger than that. And it's not a but, it's and, you know. And so every chance I get, I talk about all, like black eyed peas and phonio and sorghum and millet and all of these things and watermelon that are healthier versions or things that other, other cultures would adopt. And we've been eating them already all the time. We're already there. One of the things that you um, are really famous for is your gumbo and gumbo is perhaps one of my most favorite things in the world. And especially as a New Yorker, it's very hard to get real gumbo here, right? New York, we could get everything except there used to be a place called the gumbo shop that was pretty solid. But right now I'm like, I don't know where to go to get. So talk to me about, about gumbo and how to do it right. And what we're trying to do there. So, okay. 
I I think people know me from making gumbo because of being on Top Chef, and I had a challenge, and they, and I ended up winning that challenge with being in New Orleans and making gumbo. Um, but I do want to say one of the chefs, and I love her gumbo, is Tiffany Derry. And I, I believe her gumbo is available frozen, and you can get it. It is amazing. Really? Yes. Tiffany? Uh, Tiffany Derry. And she, um, she was on Top Chef with me season eight, and she's on Great American Recipe, and she's been on other shows. She's on um, Gordon Ramsay's Master Chef as a judge. I'll try so it. She, she really makes great gumbo. So for me, my sister went to Xavier in New Orleans. And I remember what visiting her and getting a, because I'm from Tennessee. So it's, I'm not from gumbo country, but what I understand are layering flavors. And what I understand with gumbo is yes, you have to make your roux. And that is the basis of an amazing uh, gumbo and to be, diligent and taking the time to create that, that deep, dark, nutty flavor, but also extracting flavors from your crustaceans. So if you're using shrimp, you use the shrimp shells and then you have, you know, that andouille sausage. And, and so you're creating these flavors and you're, you're layering them. And a lot of times people think, oh, I can throw this thing together, but you can't. So and all, and fat is a flavor carrier and you're getting that fat in your in your roux. But then when you're making that stock that you're going to use, you can start out with um, clam juice and then you can build on that. You can do chicken stock, but you have your shrimp shells, right? And you have your holy trinity, the onions, the peppers, and the celery. And you have thyme and a bay leaf. And that's that's your stock and your base. And, and so you're going to be layering that in. So if you have a great stock that you love, your gumbo is going to be good. And then you're going to thicken it with that roux. And then you're going to finish all, you have your andouille and you have some tomato product. It's yes or no. It depends on where you're from. If you want tomatoes in there. And then at the end, you're going to put your shrimp in so they don't overcook. And they're basically going to cook from the residual heat of that stew. That's already hot. Oh, you're okay. All right. Well, you know, I mean, it's just, it, 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 it so wait, where's so, and the love aspect, cause you always talk about cooking with love that yes. comes in everything. Like where does that sort of. So that starts with my intention when I'm making a dish. So if I'm making a dish for you and you're coming over the dinner, over to dinner, I, I'm thinking about the people who are going to eat my food. I'm excited. First of all, I get to cook with you. You know what I mean? The, I, I, I get to put all of my energy into this meal and give it to you and you're going to ingest it. And a lot of times when I start talking about this, we're like, oh my gosh, she's so weird. But the fact that you're going to eat something that I have put my hands and my love into and you're going to put it into your body, it's like water for chocolate. That is an honor. And I, I take that very seriously and I, I do see it as an honor. And so when you eat my food, you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I've been around, I've done dinners at the James Beard house and I've had a number of, of black chefs with me. And I think because we are naturally people, we are, we are people who our currency is our relationship with people. And so cooking is, becomes an extension of that relationship with people. So after that dinner, people are like, oh my gosh, this, this food was so amazing. And they, they don't even know what it is. I know absolutely what it is because we are doing it for you. It is our love language to cook for you. And you feel it. And you don't even know what it is. It's interesting the way you put it because we also have the stereotype, the caricature in so many of our minds is the egotistical chef. And the way you talk about it is the absolute inverse of that, that I am not this brilliant person who has learned all the stuff that is sharing my, my genius and my art, but like I am the nurturing servant, the highest version of that, but I am a nurturer who's like here to take care of you and help you out. Exactly. And I think, I think television, and I'm not saying those tropes don't exist, 
but I know more chefs who really love to serve people who are in service to give people this food because they get to do it. It is their love language. And I think that sometimes when we put people on pedestals, and this is why in, in our sort of the culinary culture and people are put on pedestals and then they fall from those pedestals because they're not behaving the way that we think that someone that we have lifted up should behave. And I think that when people come back to the true exchange of food and why people have restaurants and everything, and and most chefs that I know are like this. And and we most chefs don't make that much money. The restaurant doesn't make that much money. So why would why would we be out there like, oh my God, ugh, you have to do this? And it's it's intellectual exercise. Um, because it's a hard job. And um I I think we have to sort of change that idea. And and I feel like when people are making these movies, and I, I watched the menu and I thought it was interesting, you know, and be, because it just went sort of south and you know and, and, and everybody <laughs> like real south um but then you also have another show like chef where it it that series where it really is about his love of cooking and everybody's doing it because they love it but it's hard you know and the you bear wanna, hmm the bear, right. The bear. Oh my God. The bear. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for yeah, yeah. yes. So the bear. Yeah. And it is about the love of cooking and it is about it's hard, but we're still doing it anyway. And we're working as a team. Every single day we're putting out fires as a team. And that has taught me more about, I think, myself as a person, what I'm willing to do. I think chefs are the hardest working people. You know, in terms of service, I also think they give so much when you know, you look at Jose Andreas and all these people who go to these different countries and working for people. And, and, and when people need something, it's like, okay, let me cook for you. Let me give you that. And I, I think that is the true feeling. I get chills when I think about it and I talk about it. I think that is the true embodiment of a chef. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have a restaurant right now? No, I don't have a restaurant. 
Which is and, why and I, I mean talk like, so romantically about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly you could if you wanted to. So you have made a conscious decision that being a food entrepreneur is better for you than having your own place. Yeah, well, okay. So I had a restaurant in Brooklyn and I had my hot No, I want to talk about that. Yeah, um, and it took me, it took, longer to plan than it was open. So after being burned by that, I mean, I'm like, oh my gosh, can I do this? I mean, I, I'm literally scared, scared to do it. Uh, lost a lot of money. <clears throat> Four years, I was paying rent that I wasn't, and I wasn't even using the space. So I just, so that restaurant went down in 2017, right? I was still paying rent because I was locked into a lease and there was a stop work order up until December of 2022. Okay. So when people Whoa. are talking about the pandemic and how, you know, all these restaurants are having to pay money, I'm like, I understand. I, I'm not being closed because of the pandemic, but I was closed for another reason, but I still have to pay the bills. I was out here hustling, doing work. Yes, I'll take that job because that job's going to help me pay my rent in a restaurant that I can't use in New York. You know? Um, and then I had the opportunity to do a chef series with Coopers and Hawk, the Esquire in Chicago. And I told them, I said, I'm very nervous about this because I can fail by myself. I don't really need help. I, I, I will own my, <laughs> my failures, my challenges. I, I don't can, need help. I can do bad by myself. <laughs> I was trying not to say that, but I said, I can do bad by myself for real, real. So I don't, I don't really need help. So I don't need you to take my recipes and turn it into something that I would never do, right? And so I'm very protective of my brand because I've worked so hard doing this, you know? And, and not that I don't think anybody can do what I do, but I also know that when you're doing a licensing thing, I, I become very protective because I've, I've been on the bad side of somebody saying to me, oh my God, your thing was terrible and I didn't do it. Um, so, but that was a really good experience for me. They understood my food. I went there, I trained, um, the crew, we were a partnership. And so I look very differently at opening a restaurant, but I know that I can't be there as a primary chef because I'm doing other things. So would I do a licensed restaurant under my name and work with the team? I, I'm going to say yes, if the right opportunity presents itself. Okay. What happened in Brooklyn? So, um, I think, uh, in the nutshell, location, location, location. Um, where were you? Uh, it was in, uh, it was in the Columbia street waterfront. Some people back in the day, it was known okay. as red hook. It was about a mile okay. from, the Barclays Center. Uh, it was nice. what we could afford. We, um, you know, and and we did a a Kickstarter. We probably raised about two hundred thousand dollars, two fifty um, for the restaurant. We needed about a million. We put a million into it. So you know, when people are like I paid for your restaurant, okay. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> but but and I'm gonna tell you what what Kickstarter did for me though. I appreciate. I had with that platform, it allowed me to have a cheering squad with sometimes when things get tough, you're like, okay, I'm doing it for these people. I don't care if it was $25, a hundred dollars, whatever, but the, I appreciate these people who are rooting for me. And I remember when at the end of it, um, and we closed and we, we sort of made our goal. I, I, I just cried. I'm like, wow, the, the fact that these people were like rooting for us and they believed in us. And so we went in and we had a really great, kick off and start. But we were also in a place in Brooklyn that didn't get a lot of walking traffic. Right. Um, we, and, um, and so when somebody says for a business location, 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 what in hindsight we probably should have done was to pay for the best location that we could have afforded, put less money maybe into the build out and started out small so that um, I mean, I had a national presence on television, but I was also in a place where nobody was going to walk by, you know? And so I, I would do it differently. Yeah, no, I, I, 
I, yeah, I could see where folks would make a Carla Hall restaurant a destination because you're a national brand, but you're like, that's not enough. No. Oh, no, no. And, and, and the thing is, when you're trying to tell somebody, yeah, I want to open a restaurant with you because you're going to bring the people. You're going to bring the people to the yard. Um, and I'm like, well, no, you need more than that. And we were a fast, casual restaurant. It wasn't like we were fine dining. So, you know, we needed it to be in a, another location because our average ticket price was like, what, $20, $20 25 You know, that's a lot of chicken. You have to, you know, I, a lot of chicken, you know, and we had I mean, really good food. You, so you, you, you hit your, you hit your aesthetic standard, uh-huh. but yeah. the business that just that you weren't getting enough people in the door. Exactly. And, and well, what happened, we had an electrical fire and so we had to shut down and it, we sort of lost momentum and we're in order once we were working on trying to get that up and running, and once we got it up and running, we were working at a deficit because we had all of these expenses, these daily expenses. And then we were like, okay, we dropped PR. That was the last thing we needed to do because we needed PR to tell people, no, we're back open. And it was like a year later, people were like, have you opened yet? Yeah, we opened yet. Now we got to close because nobody knows we're open. You spent two years planning it before you opened? We spent two years planning it, getting the space ready, working on branding, all of that. Yeah. I mean, you can't pay off all the opening bills in 12 months. Correct. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. So that, I mean, that first year quite often pulls people under because you have to pay so much just to get in the door of, of get just to open the first person. Open the door for the that, first person. I love that you understand that. It is just so incredibly amazing. <laughs> I worked in restaurants when I first came to New York. So I got a sprinkling of understanding of what all this is and 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 and, and a respect, especially for servers. But you know, I was a I was a bar back and a food runner. I never never made it to server, but um a definite respect for how difficult that job is. And you know, I say every every three or four years when I get a little bored, I don't really have any that much to do today for whatever reason. I go on Twitter and I'll be like you got to tip 20%. That is a three-day argument. <laughs> but black people are throwing tomatoes. Like, what are you talking about? Like, uh, all right, here we go again. Okay, let me just tell you, as a black person, um, I tend to over-tip because I am tipping for all the people who came, the black people who came before me who don't tip because a lot of times they don't expect you to tip. And this is why, you know, I went to Howard University and um, this reminds me, they wanted me to do a video of, of why it's important to give back. Look, if you're not going to give back to your alma mater, you know you're not going to give to some waiter that you don't even know. I'm like, come on. Like, what? <laughs> is it true that the folks in the industry assume we're going to be bad tippers? I think so. I think so. And, and, you know, a lot of times, uh, let one thing be wrong and, you know, and then we don't tip anybody, but that waiter is still working. The waiter is not cooking. The waiter is, you know what I mean? And so it becomes this thing. Uh, I mean, overall culturally this thing that black people don't tip well. And, um, and I don't know if it's, it's something with service that we have an issue like reconciling servitude and service. You know what I mean? I don't know. I will pay I mean, for I, service. I struggle to think about the last 25 years of going to restaurants of where I had an experience where I could say, you know, the server didn't do a great job, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, the, the people are professional, they care, and they fully understand this is my check that you are so uh, you know let me bend over backwards to make sure you get you know what and i don't know i don't know who these people are having these bad experiences with servers i i I haven't you know i haven't lived that at all um but the kitchen is very stressful i did learn that is it not like oh the kitchen is stressful i mean you have sharp objects you could get burned i mean things are moving really quickly you have to multitask it's i mean hot what 
I mean, and you're going to go home smelling like grease and onions. You have to get up and do it all over again. I mean, it is, it is stressful. And depending on how, on how busy the restaurant is, I think people who work in the restaurant world are very much synonymous with probably uh, a little bit like a soldier. You have to stay ready. And so you have to, like your reaction time has to be very quick. And you go through that every night. And so when you're not doing the restaurant, you may have a little PTSD from it. I had PTSD when I was on Top Chef. I mean, just to go into a grocery store, they're telling me I have 20 minutes to get my stuff. And with, uh, for years, even now, I walk through like, I'm like, oh my God, I got to get my, oh my, God, get all my groceries. What do I want? I hope I don't miss anything. I hope I, oh my God, what's happening? Uh, what? I mean, <laughs> I, I still do it. You know, I was waking up in the middle of the night. Oh my God, I forgot something. Oh my God, time's up. You know, I, I, I still kind of have that PTSD. It's been 16 years. <laughs> Shoot. Yes. Yeah, it's hard. Um, <laughs> Tom Colicchio lives around here, so I see him in the park all the time. But let's talk about the racism that you may have experienced in this industry. How does it come at you? I think, you know, I feel like the the biggest outpicturing of racism is the lack of respect or the under valuing or or not thinking that you're going to produce like the the lack of expectations because you're uh. you know which is why so many black people like work harder which is why and i i even talk to myself like even like the tip thing i'm like can i can i get it out of my head that that to not carry that that i have to prove myself by Tipping, right? You know, uh, or when I am going in and when I was catering and I'm the owner of the company, like, oh my God, the food is great. So who's the owner? And they're talking to me. I'm like, uh, I, I am, you know, because the expectations of this great product that they've just experienced may not necessarily be attached to me, the physical person that they're speaking to. And that's stereotype threat, right? Yes. That you, that if, whether or not they say it, and you're you're smart and empathetic and his, and experienced enough to know it when you see it, but you know, like, mm, they're not expecting, or they're expecting whatever. So I have to do double. I have to tip for the other black people who didn't. I have to work harder for the other chef that they didn't love. Whatever, like that's an extra burden on your back. One hundred percent. 100%. I mean, you have all of these chefs. Like I, I watch, um, I'm watching next level chef right now. And on Instagram, I focused on some of these chefs and Aisha Arrington was one of the chefs that I spot was spotlighting during black history month. And, um, and she's worked at all of these fine dining restaurants and, you know, she's part, she has a Korean background as well as African-American. And like, she does fine dining, beautiful food. But sometimes when you go and even we do it to ourselves, it's like, can't you just cook some macaroni and cheese, girl? So it's not like uh, it's just other people. We do it to ourselves. We put ourselves in a box and you want to connect to people and, you know, and they're like, oh, I want to I want to serve you something else. And so I straddle that world, too. And I want to celebrate, you know, um, people like her and Tiffany Derry and John Hall and all these fine dining chefs that I know. But yet, I mean, but yet I also want to feel like it's okay if I want to do soul food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause I don't, I, I don't mean, want to have I to prove anything. Soul food. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you made me think about the way the comment before, about how so many people still expect the woman to take care of the cooking, the kitchen department at home, but then go to a restaurant and look sideways at a female chef. How, how, how that makes sense. Right. Oh my God. What I think, and I've said this many times before, the woman needs to take the kitchen back because all of those male chefs will stand up and say, I'm inspired by my mother. 
and they're sitting oh, yeah. up in Brand, that right. Mother, yeah. I, I mean, okay, if you're inspired by your mother, well, look to your right, look to your left, and there the women are in the kitchen. How about that? Right. And that's also, and so what you do, you get this thing and, but like, what do you think as a female chef? What do you think as, and some, and some, um, female chefs like, but I just want to be known as a chef. And, but at the end of the day, I want to say, but you are female. And so, and with you being female comes something that you can turn into an asset I don't want to be a male chef. I'm a female, but you are Blanche, you're female, you know? <laughs> so I, <laughs> so I lean into that and, and what does my female energy, like, what are those assets? And I think, um, I have a balance of male and female energy. I am very intuitive. I am very nurturing when it comes to food. Um, yes, I'm competitive, but I also want to take care of you. And, and so a lot of men have to learn that they have to learn that. But when I eat somebody's food and I always talk about Michael Simon, um, I said, when you eat that man's food, you know, he loves his mama because it feels like that, that, that food that takes care of you. And then sometimes you like, Oh, okay. This person is in an intellectual exercise, but I, I feel like as um, a black chef, I, I want to lean into what my soul and what my spirit wants to do and, and what makes me sing and what, what makes me feel closest to my ancestors, which, which is, is, is what feeds everything that I do. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market.com slash Torrey on March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted, but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is mostly secret. And when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV, campsite media, and iHeart podcasts. Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk about fame and how that has helped and hurt. Because you were clearly a master chef before Top Chef. And then you propelled to a whole nether level, brand name. Everybody knows who you are. So how does that help and hurt? all these dynamics we're talking about in the kitchen and the restaurant industry for you? Um, I, I think it helps because it helps because what having this position and and doing food television, it gave me the confidence. So more than cooking or anything, it's, it's confidence and confidence to be myself, confidence to, to go gray in an industry where they're like, uh, ma'am, you cannot go gray. And I'm like, sir, send me an email. Okay. So, um, you know, but so it gave me the confidence and, and I think that, um, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that I am not aware of my fans and the people and, and people who, who see me on television, but it hasn't changed me. I look at all of those people as um, when, when somebody's like, oh, do you get tired of your fans coming up and taking pictures? I'm like, no, it's why I have a job. 
And so I, and I tell my husband, I said, you're my ambassador because the last thing I want, you know, is my husband to, to be flipping somebody off or get impatient when we're out and like, Oh, Carla has an asshole husband, you know? <laughs> right. I'm like, you're my ambassador. And so it's, it's straddling and, and not getting like your head so big where you become a version of yourself, you know, like you're the brand and you're not this person. Um, and I think sometimes a lot of people want to, like, I don't even know if I'm answering your question, but I would rather people not treat me like a celebrity. Really? I, I would. I would. But then there are, there are times where I'm like, I have, and it's not the celebrity. It's just that I have been in this business long enough to know, and I have enough experience that I want the respect that the experience has given me, not because I'm on television. So if I say yes to a job and, um, and, and you're like, Oh, Hey, Carla, um, I want you to just come in as like, um, a prep cook or whatever, knowing that they need somebody to think through the production of this thing, because I've done food television and I'm like, "Ah, I don't want to do that because I can't step into doing this job without bringing you all of my experience that I've had. So I'm going to give you all of my knowledge, which you're not going to pay for, which means I'm not going to take that job. (laughs) Do you you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's not my celebrity. It's, it's the confidence in myself and my worth as a person, as a black woman, you know, so that leads first before all of these other things. And, and maybe the celebrity and the people that I've been around, and I see how, and, and I have to say, even the white male, sometimes you learn how to be in this, in this quote unquote game because they have the confidence. And as a black person, you're like, okay, if relationships are important to us and maybe with European of, of white bodied people, the thing is really important to them. Well, I still need to understand the game of the thing. And maybe they need to learn from me the game of people. So, okay, elements of being a chef, because if I said, you know, basketball players got to be able to shoot, run, jump, read a defense, you know, free throw, these are the elements that it takes. Okay, so what are the elements that it takes to be a great chef? So chefs need to be able to, I mean, there's certain techniques that you just need. You need to know how to, you need to be able to taste. There's just certain techniques of cooking. You need to know um, cooking techniques, searing, braising, you know, making the mother sauces. You need to know all of that. But in terms of being a chef and being a manager of a kitchen, you need to be able to delegate. You need to be able to train. You need to be able to understand what one person can do better than another person and where to put them in your kitchen so that your kitchen runs smoothly. You need to be able to create um, a dynamic where the front of the house and the back of the house understand that they have to work together. And it comes from you. A lot of times, I mean, they are the captain. It comes through the chef to everyone else. Um, I think that you need to be able to motivate people. A lot of times uh, the, the people who come through the kitchen aren't necessarily educated. I mean, I, I, back in the day, it was like the restaurant was the, the land of the misfit elves. And so you need to yeah. be able to take somebody who is a blue collar, it's a blue collar job, right? You need to be able to take somebody who maybe didn't graduate, doesn't have a GED or whatever, and, and put them next to somebody who went to culinary school and somebody who is living in the hood and who has all of these situations going on and they, they came to work, but uh, things were like roped off or whatever, you know what I mean? Somebody died, but they, they were a little late. You know, all of that. You need to be a social worker. You need, to be, you need to be all of those things and working in restaurants and working in food. And it really is about putting people together and seeing how someone shines. Okay, you talked about all that and that was brilliant. I want to dive back into that for a second, but you didn't even get into like the relationship between you as the top chef in the house and the guests who are coming in the regulars, the tourists, the, the first timers, there's a, right. There's a whole relationship between and a person like you, they're coming to see you because they saw you on TV. So they want to see you come out at least. Right. 
come to our table or walk through this, the, 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 the dining room or something. 100%. And you know, it's, it's interesting that you brought that up because back in the day before there was a top chef or a celebrity chef, the chefs were in the kitchen and at the end of the night, the chef might come out. Um, and I think that some chefs are better for their personalities. They prefer to be in the kitchen. They don't want to come out front because that requires some kind of, um, social skills. I mean, I don't mean to say, (laughs) I I don't mean to imply that chefs don't have social skills, but when you are a personality, it is required that you have some kind of rapport with people, with your guests in the restaurant or outside of it. And because you are an ambassador of all of those people who work for you at that point in time, right? So it's really important to come out and not only sort of have FaceTime, but you also want to, it's a time to tell your stories about your food. You know, it's like the shelf talkies. And so they understand, if they understand you, perhaps they will understand also your food. Um, I love talking to people. I love coming out and talking to people. And, you know, and sometimes if we have a chance, I'm like, hey, I'm making this thing. Do you want to try it? Do you want to taste it? You know, these off the menu things. I say, what do you think? Right. I love that. So exciting. So exciting. So within the, you started to allude to this, but I want to go deeper. Within the culture of the restaurant, it really does break down that there's two cultures, right? The front of the house a certain sort of person is attracted to the front of the house and there's certain skills that are inculcated in them in terms of talking to people, right? And you remember, as soon as you cross the door to go into the kitchen, it's like you've gone into an entirely different world, an entirely different country. And it's it's not necessary. It's, it's, it's war, it's loud, it's yelling. You know, the, the way you relate to the table is entirely different than the way you relate to the people on the line. And, but, but those two cultures, the front of the house and the back of the house, the kitchen, have to relate and they have to work together. Even though they have different pay, different backgrounds, different relations, right? So how do you make sure that that flows? And, and, and keep in mind that I'm talking about this from having worked in restaurants, but I don't own a restaurant. Um, but I think this day and age, there are a lot of open kitchens. So you still uh-huh. have to have the sense of it has to be a quiet kitchen. I personally would not work in a kitchen if somebody's yelling to me. I remember when I, um, the first kitchen that I worked in after culinary school, I, I said, um, I would say to the chef, are you a screamer? And I don't mean personally. Because I, I'm like, I, I know how I need to work so that you would get the best job out of me. And so when people work with me, I tell them, I am not a screamer. This is what I expect. I'm not a micromanager, but I expect you to do your job. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm very direct and very quiet in how I run a crew. And if there's somebody who, I said, if you need me to scream at you to get you to do your job, this is not the place for you. Because I, I'm not going to be that person. And I'm going to be looking at you like, I could, I could give somebody a look. And also, this is what I love. I knew that my height was a, a factor and a plus and an asset in the kitchen. Because I'm, I'm six feet tall. And I knew girls women who were like five, five and they were working in a kitchen, they would get like hit with hot sheet pans and everything like, you know, on the elbow, the shoulder. I'm like, what? Because they, they were working in these kitchens that they felt were these premier pedigree kitchens. Cause that's what they wanted to do, but they didn't think about the culture that they were stepping into. But those are the questions sure. that I asked. What do you want from your servers who are your face and the face of the food. I do recall going to a service meeting, a couple service meetings where they were far more detailed than I had ever imagined at telling you, this is what you say. This is how you respond. If this happens, you say this, if this happens, you do that. And I'm like, wow, like they are really like, so to you guys who are running restaurants are really meticulous about what the server should and should not do. 100% and training. So being a server, it is a profession. 
there are people, even if you're an actor, if you're something else, if it's, it's temporary, but there are professional servers. And when you have that front of the house manager, that is your first point of contact of the person that you hire who can manage those people and who can train those people. It's all about training. And it's all about understanding when you have your menu that those people who are your ambassadors understand the food. You are going to serve them that food so they have tasted it versus being in some place, oh, I don't know how that is. I haven't had it. <laughs> I mean, they have to have the food. I mean, you can't, you can't not give them the food and make them excited about it. The one thing that I, that I remember in my restaurant and I remember hiring this woman as um, she was literally, I hired her to be the auntie in the front of the house. She was a church lady. I wanted her to walk around. Offer, now, this is a fast, casual restaurant. Ma'am, do you need any more napkins? Let me get you some more sauce. Do you need something? That was just her job. That It was her job to make people feel like they stepped into my house in Nashville, Tennessee. But she's, but she's kind of supporting the servers. She's supporting the servers, but she is setting a tone. And as soon as you yeah. change people's minds and you put them at ease, everything falls into place. Do you know what I mean? It's the tone and, and all the servers working to, I said, you should treat these people like they were drop-ins into your house. But it comes from the top. It comes from setting that tone. And so I think that, and there are a lot of people say, oh my gosh, at my restaurant, oh, the, the, the back of the house doesn't get along with the front of the house. But if you set the right tone, they shouldn't be any different. They should be working together. Because she's like, I know this food is going to be really great because I know the work that they put into that food. And you're not putting it across the line for, like, let's say, like a touchdown until that plate sits down and then gets picked up again from those people. Because if you have 50% of your kitchen working really hard and the other 50% isn't working that hard or they're working against like their separate teams – you're not going to meet the goal, which everybody's goal should be for happy customers. So I think right. that there is a sense of people working together more so than I, I feel people thought in the past. And, and I, like the la- last night I was in a restaurant in Pennsylvania in Westchester, there was this young waiter. He was so confident and he, I mean, maybe he was like 22 years old. But he felt like an old soul because I felt like it was great service. He was attentive. He has had a great memory. He was. He called me Miss. I didn't care. You know what I mean? It's like I. I was like, oh my gosh, he's been trained. Well, that's an interesting thing, Mike. I and I and this leaps out at me because of my kids. Um, right, everything's changing with the pronouns and stuff. Like if the server comes over and he says to you, you know, how are you, Miss? you could very likely get offended. I am they, them. I am he, I am he, him. I am Mrs. What have you like? So how do we even factor that into the mix? Unless you are wearing something around your neck, this person has met you for the first time. You cannot expect, I mean, what are your expectations? And so I feel now I'm cisgender, but I feel if that offends you, then there's something else going on. I don't know you. If it, if it offends you that I'm calling you Miss and you, but, I should have but, called but, you. Wait, now, now wait, now you, 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 you. Are, I'm, I'm feeling you because we're both Gen X, right? You're, you're like right at the cusp, right? But the millennials and the Zoomers are like, you didn't ask. <laughs> And the servers are at the are at the 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 front line of some of that. Yeah, I'll work on it then. I'll work <laughs> on being there because it's work. <laughs> the next generation is probably me, and I'm like, okay, all right. Sometimes my heart don't match up with my head on it, but I'm like, I'm listening to them, and yeah. I never want to feel like I'm I'm out of. Exactly right. And, and, and sometimes it is evident. Like if I see someone, I'm like, okay, they, and, and, and then sometimes I'm like, okay, how can I just avoid any and all pronouns? 
because I, and I think sometimes I feel like we want to be seen for our individuality so much that we're all going to be islands. Uh, uh, uh. So, okay. There's a superstar group of people in the living room, people you love and admire, whoever that might be. Oprah, your grandmother, whoever, you got to cook them the killer dish, the killer meal. So you're going to pull out Carla's, the thing that you do best. What are you making? I am honestly going to make, and uh, and I, I hope nobody has a peanut allergy because I have to think about that too now. Um, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I am going to make a ground nut stew with hot water cornbread, a lime salt sprinkled over the cornbread. I'm going to do probably some big salad. Everything is going to be family style. And we're going to have a big Lazy Susan in the middle of this round table that we're going to spin. And we're going to have some side dishes, probably some black eyed peas. We're going to have, it depends on also what time of year it is, but I, I put us in the fall. And, um, and I'm sure we're going to have something that we're going to eat with our hands. I don't know what it is, but I, I am going to welcome because I think there is an elegance to eating with your hands, which is harkens back to a lot of the, the way that they eat in West Africa. And I think when people are like, Oh my God, they eat with their hands, but there is an elegance and, um, a proper way to eat with your hands. And I think food just tastes better when you eat with you your hands. You mean like the way we eat fried chicken with our hands or the way some cultures eat rice with their hands? The way that some cultures eat rice with their hands and stew and the foo-foo and not and the food not going over the knuckles. And and I I love I love with the left hand. Right. Exactly. And I, I, I love that. Um, is it the left hand or the right hand? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but one or the other, the, the opposite one that you wipe yeah. with. But, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> but I, I, lo- I love hands. It's like one of my things. I love watching people work with their hands. And I love, and I think there's such elegance to it. And I think that, you know, we have been taught that it's barbaric. You know, and I think that's changing now as we as we bring in cultures and we and we're very accepting of people's cultures. Um, but I, I, there's a part of me that actually just likes. You know, like I, I love asparagus, eating asparagus with my hands. I love having lettuce cups and just having things and just folding that lettuce and eating with my hands. Um, I like. I like Ethiopian food because you take the injera indira and eat with your hands. I I, I love. Um, um, Kamayan meals, you know, that you eat with your hands. I just, I just love that. I feel like it's, it's absolutely a sense of community and trust. So, okay. I aspire to cook fried chicken. Well, I do not yet really do that. (laughs) I I, I aspire to do that for a while. (laughs) Help me. What, how how do I make great fried chicken at home? Okay, first thing you start with a really great bird. You start with just some good chicken. Um, I remember we it took us a while to find just some good organic chicken that just just pulls apart. You know, not full of hormones. Um, <clears throat> then I don't use. Then I do dry spices. I do cayenne, paprika, garlic powder, all dry spices. Here's the secret of vinegar powder. Um, and a pickle powder. So those things go on it. When that vinegar hits the skin, it makes it tacky. And then you're going to have a, um, your, your dry dredge. So seasoned flour with just like, you're going to have salt on there too. On the chicken, and then you're going to have your dredge with a little salt, pepper, paprika, right? And then the reason that I'm not going to ask you to do buttermilk is because buttermilk is wet. Anything wet, and you can even do a buttermilk powder in your flour. 
The reason I don't do anything wet is because when your chicken gets wet, then you have to sit it in the refrigerator to dry out, right? Because if you go right from wet to the dry, the skin creates steam and that steam gets under the flour. And then your chicken then is uh, is not as crispy and the skin comes off because it it creates that steam. Um, So once you do that, your chicken needs to be just just over room temperature, right? Because you don't want cold chicken because the steam, again, will create um, that difference in temperature creates steam. And then you're going to, you can cook it in a cast iron skillet. Most people may feel comfortable with, um, you know, a little fryer and you're going to start high just to seal that grease, go down low to finish cooking it and then finish high, high, low, high. Why do you do that? Because you have your chicken, it's not cold, cold, but you want to, you want it, the grease to be hot enough where the skin, where it bubbles, like those little bubbles when you put the, the, the chicken in the grease and you're having those bubbles. And then the temperature goes down because it will naturally go down because you're putting a lot of pieces into the oil, not too many, because you don't want to drop it to where there are no bubbles. And then you're going to turn it over. The bubbles are going to start to get smaller around that chicken. And then you're going to turn it up a little higher because you want the chicken now to finish getting crispy on the outside. You don't want it too high throughout the cook because it's going to cook on the outside. Your skin is going to be burned before your chicken is actually cooked through. Does that make sense? It does. I have to listen about that back, but that was brilliant. That was brilliant. You know, you remind me that you guys, you chefs, are at the intersection of art and science, right? Because you're thinking science. about, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's both of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I love, um, Shirley Corher wrote a book, um, Food Wise, Food Wise, Bake Wise, and I think she did another one, uh, but she does food science. And I, I kind of nerd out. So sometimes when people ask me, like they'll ask me about my biscuit recipe, for instance, and it's been the same recipe, but I had to teach people how to make biscuits who had never made biscuits before. And I started nerding out just so they could understand, but how can I get a good biscuit? But the techniques change. A recipe can be the same. This is why I share my recipes. I'm like, I'll show you a recipe. I don't, I don't care. I'm not that proprietary because I know that you're not, you don't know the same techniques that I know, you know? You just, you, it's just a list of ingredients and measures, but you know, the, the way that your hands feel, the way you treat the butter, even though and I, I will tell you how to do it, you still won't do it. I, I, I gave my recipe to this lady and I'm like, what happened to your biscuits? She said, oh, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I said, okay, well, you didn't do my recipe. So keep doing that. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's why I didn't turn out. <laughs> but it sounds like from just things you've said, you are all day about cooking you're watching shows you're reading books is it is it just like an obsession for you of just constantly thinking about food and food culture no you know interestingly enough my husband cooks mostly at home um i cook for i love cooking for the holidays um i eat very simply at home because i have to eat out a lot i i don't i Interestingly enough, when people are asking me, where do I go in Washington, D.C.? I'm like, ooh, where do you, where do you go? Because I, I want to eat at home. You know, I, I get tired of eating out and I can control um, my diet. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 60, so I feel like I can control my weight and my, my body and what I need at home. Um, but I love the science of food when I have something and it's so good. I'm like, Oh my God, I just, and I, I, and I, I really nerd out and I geek out and I love going to a restaurant where they're just they're They have the confidence to make something that doesn't have a lot of stuff like, you know, blueberries with whipped cream and maple syrup. Like, do you have the confidence to do something like that? There's a, a chef here, Riss Lacoste, and whenever we do these food events, and she might do a salad. It's one of the best dang things, you know, all these chefs doing all this pizzazz and everything because everything, the acidity of the dressing, 
like just the right amount of dressing, the the oil that she chose, you know, the 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 components and the bits and bobs, you know, the lettuce that she chose, like all of that was crafted beautifully. And people underestimate simplicity. And I, I mean, there is there is complexity in simplicity, and that's the thing that I love. And I nerd out about those things. Thank you so much for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. And maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. Shut us down.